Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we will be talking with Robin Klingler Vidra, author of the new Cornell book, The Venture Capital State, the Silicon Valley model in East Asia. Robin is lecturer in political economy in the Department of International Development at King's College London. We chatted with Robin about her new book, which details how the Silicon Valley model thanks to intelligent and strategic government intervention, has spread throughout the world in unique and successful ways. We also talked about the recent news regarding Saudi Arabia and Elon Musk's solar technology and electric vehicle company, Tesla. Hello, Robin. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Well, we're excited to have you on. I have in front of me your new book, The Venture Capital State, The Silicon Valley Model in East Asia. Um, I guess right off the bat, I'll just ask, tell us what the Silicon Valley model is. Yeah, sure. So there's, well, I'll start with, there's this idea that the Silicon Valley venture capital came to be sort of through this weird confluence of factors and through mostly market mechanisms. And in the book, I look at, well, what was the environment in which Silicon Valley really came to be? And particularly, what are the policy elements that created this high-risk investment asset class that's based around uh, Silicon Valley in the U.S. in California. Uh, and looking at what's the funding, what's the regulation, and what's the taxation. In short, the U.S. government starts investing and offering loans to venture capital funds from the late 1950s. This has been left out of the narrative of how Silicon Valley came to be. We sort of imagine these sort of almost gunslinging or cowboy type high risk entrepreneurs and venture capitalists just coming to be. But in fact, they were taking loans from the small business investment company program from the late 50s. Then the venture capital asset class has some wins. They invest in really successful companies that say go public on NASDAQ after it's launched in 1971. Then by the late 70s, we have the government, in my view, really stepping up its role. And you have the government changing the tax rates, the capital gains tax that these venture capitalists play from, the, from 1979, allowing pension funds to invest in the same year, and then making a more, say, permissive regulatory environment in 1980. And so this venture capital policy model is the various components that the government contributes to help venture capital sort of add rocket fuel to its recipe. Interesting, interesting. And so this is, it's been such a, an incredible success that now uh, multiple countries, I think you list um, 45 countries have, have adopted this model. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely. So in my research, I, I said, okay, I want to see how this model has traveled. You know, in, in my research, I'd interview policymakers uh, around, around the world, but particularly in East Asia. And in the early stages, I said, you know, what's, what's the interest? We have this idea that Silicon Valley is sort of this ephemeral success story that everyone knows about it and wants to replicate it. And actually, just quickly, you know, you hear of in London here, we have the Silicon Roundabouts. Now in Nairobi, there's Silicon Savannah. Taiwan has Silicon Island. You, you get the picture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so many countries want to replicate it. And so I want to understand, well, what do you believe the Silicon Valley model is and why do you want to do it? So I looked at the 45 countries that I thought were the most likely targets 
to adopt or to act upon the Silicon Valley model. And this is the, all of the OECD countries. Uh, this is the G20 high growth economies. And over the course of my years of research, I map out all the tax, all the regulatory, and all the funding that's been offered to venture capital to grow local venture capital markets in the Silicon Valley style. And ultimately, I find that all 45 have acted. All 45 countries have done something to replicate a local Silicon Valley, often invoking the same either Silicon or Valley term. Uh, but as, I'll, as we'll get to, uh, uh, to my surprise and interest and in what I spend a lot of time explaining in the book, they all do something different. Uh, so, you know, I lived in New York in the early 90s and, or in the early 2000s, and it reminds me of a show that was on Broadway, the, um, the Seinfeld show that was, I love you, you're perfect, now change. <laughs> so, you know, people would look at this and say, this is amazing, we want to do the Silicon Valley thing, and they would go and they would study it. And then go back home and say, so we're going to change all of these really important things to localize it for us. Yeah, that was fascinating. I, it was in your book and also in the, the recent article you wrote for American Affairs, Building the Venture Capital State, uh, American Affairs Journal. Um, yeah, that, that the representatives of these countries would send um, folks to Silicon Valley and have them live there for a couple of years and really investigate exactly what was going on. And then, as you said, bring it back, but change it pretty dramatically. Um, in, for their own context. Um, so your research focused specifically on, uh, you know, it, well, it, it mentions all the 45 countries' venture capital policies, and you have original data set of those policies, but your, your central focus is Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Singapore. What elements of the Silicon Valley venture capital model worked for them, and what did not? Well, so first, and you mentioned, so Singapore is my probably my favorite example of a really diligent studying of the model. And exactly as you alluded to, one of the policymakers I interviewed went and he was sent to live in the Valley for two years to make sure he really understands it. You know, when we spoke, he said, on the flight home, I said, okay, I, I totally got it. This won't work. I'm going to go home and I'm going to change it totally. Uh, so yeah, so I look at Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Singapore. Uh, and I'm interested in how each of these countries within this 45 country set, but these three countries that are small economies, East Asia, similar ethnic populations, um, similar economies in terms of level of economic growth and timing trajectory. So some sort of uh, baseline similarities, let's say. They all change the policy in very different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the research looks at, well, why did they do that? And what impact did that have? Uh, so looking at how the Hong Kong government, so of course Hong Kong's been ranked by the Heritage Economic Freedom Index and by uh, the Economist Intelligence Unit as one of the most free, or as the most free economy in the world. So Hong Kong adapts what they understand as the, as the, Singa, the Silicon Valley model into a way that's more sort of open for the market. Then Taiwan says, okay, we're, we're going to go, we're going to study, and they send a study team, you know, in the early 80s, and similarly come back and say, well, we're going to do something that fits our preference for using tax incentives. We've learned that that works, and that's how we, we built our semiconductor and broader technology capacity. We're going to change the, the legal structure, we're going to change this emphasis on the regulatory environment, we're going to use tax incentives specifically for VC. 
And then Singapore with our, our gentleman who flies home and says, I'm, I'm going to change it totally, says, well, in Singapore, it works pretty well when we put money behind things that we believe in, in order to attract multinationals and top talents. So the Singaporean model was taking what they learned of Silicon Valley and then creating a billion dollar fund to try to attract sort of blue chip, best in the world venture capitalists to come set up in Singapore. Uh, so I map over the course of these different timelines how these three countries each did something very, you know, very different. And I say very different. I mean, they've, they've all attracted and built local venture capital markets. When I say very different, it's different from what sort of scholars would expect. And we sort of maybe most simply we would imagine if we buy that everyone wants to have the local Silicon Valley, we would expect them to copy it right, and to do some version of what they learned. Uh, so understanding why did they change it? How did they change it? And then I, I argue that they changed it in ways that fit their local context. And that's why these three countries have been successful in building local venture capital markets. And you had mentioned um, there were some, uh, well, that, that, that the, the kind of um, narrative in the U.S., uh, recently has been the, you know, they looked back at, at the time and said, oh, we've, these companies just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. You know, they didn't need the government at all. But in fact, that's completely uh, not in, in any way realistic to the history of, of the adventure. Um, so it's clear you mentioned uh, with these cases, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Singapore, successful because the government was instrumental in, in creating these uh, venture capital programs. You had mentioned a couple um, that didn't work, for example, in Russia, and that just that it wasn't implemented well. And that, again, probably was a government issue, perhaps. Um, uh, but, but what are some of the lessons that perhaps the U.S. industry uh, can learn, that, that Silicon Valley can learn from all the successful ventures overseas? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a great question. I think there's a few things. So one, I, I would say... I very much think that this, the real story of how American tech has come to be this powerhouse and Silicon Valley in particular came to be, in, in my view and what I uh, said in the American Affairs piece that came out earlier this week as well and, and what I say in, in the book is, look, the story is missing a key protagonist and so we have to look at the role of the government and this very innate, more than enabling environment, I would say sort of leading uh, in role in this in, in creating Silicon Valley. So if we take this, okay, the government was instrumental in creating Silicon Valley, then I think there can be a more honest assessment for the Valley of saying, okay, it's not simply we need to be more risk-taking, we need to have our entrepreneurs do certain things. It's engaging with policy in a very real way and saying, okay, how is regulation affecting us now? These tax, cha tax changes that are in the pipeline what will that mean to the profitability of the asset class? You know, when pension funds are able to invest billions of dollars into venture capital, what does that mean? How can we get access to greater amounts of funding or change the source of funding? So I think for the Valley to be sort of honest with itself of, of saying, okay, the government matters and these, you know, funding, tax and regulation, they matter a lot and let's engage with it. I think that's one. And the other big lesson for me is there's this, you know, some have called it, you know, Robert Wade calls it this neoliberal paradox. And, you know, Linda Weiss talks about it actually in her book that came out with Cornell University Press as well, America Inc. 
um, you know, they'll say, look, it's not true, right? This, this idea that it's, it's free, freewheeling capitalism. But the problem with that is internationally, when, when policymakers around the world look to the Valley, they think, okay, well, it's just, you know, American exceptionalism or American risk-taking, American culture, or, you know, this tremendous confluence of historical factors or events. And for me, in looking at how policymakers learn around the world, that's a, a sort of dangerous or at least unfair conclusion to come to. And instead, if the, the truth of how Silicon Valley venture capital came to be was better known, then policymakers could know, okay, well, actually, this, you know, SBIC, the Small Business Investment Company program that gave loans, this was instrumental. We could think about doing something like that, a version of that locally. Okay, the, the capital gains tax rate, the venture capital has benefited from at this lower rate since the late 70s. That was really important. We can think about that. So it being in having the international community that's learning about venture capital have a better understanding of the central role of the state instead of thinking, well, we need to change you know, everything. We need to change culture. We need to somehow become more you know, neoliberal American, which as, as I argued, that's a fallacy. It doesn't exist. Interesting, interesting. I, one question I had, it does seem to be the way, I mean, politics are always changing, but the way the, the current political situation is, is that the, um, there's a move towards um, a defunding of the federal system and, and a desire to push things more towards the state. Um, and it, there's a lot of money invested in, in having that happen. In that case, um, how much of the Silicon Valley um, government regulations and, and incentives were, were state-driven versus federal-driven? Oh. That's a really excellent uh, observation. So a lot of the policy that... that I hold as instrumental in building Silicon Valley and say Route 128 in Boston was in fact not at the state level, it's at the federal level. And it's, it's national regulation that changed the, the treatment of um, uh, ERISA, the change that allowed pension fund money to flow in, that's a national regulation uh, change. The tax treatment is national. But interestingly, and as other scholars have, have revealed, over at least 47 of the 50 U.S. states have explicitly tried to create within their state local venture capital markets since Silicon Valley's rise. Uh, so there's subsequently, I would say, since venture capital really came to be, there's been this rise of regional, even in municipal as well, uh, governments that are thinking, okay, we want to have this magic too. We, we want to have this pow high-powered capital too. And often they turn to to money and it turns to, okay, we're going to, you know, either act as venture capitalists ourselves and invest in startups, or we're going to create this sort of fund of funds, something like along the lines of the Singaporean model that I, that I mentioned, and we're going to fund venture capitalists in our state. Uh, but I would in, in the sort of cause and the, the main driver of Silicon Valley success, it was primarily from my view, a national policy effort. Interesting. Interesting. Well, it's, it's, as you were saying, once the um, that your book does um, takes the um, the history of Silicon Valley and, and, and presents it to uh, in very accessible terms to the general public, uh, that this information needs to get out there to break this myth that that Silicon Valley just 
just happened, just, as you said before, because of American exceptionalism and had nothing to do with the federal government. Um, and that would, once that information's out there, uh, it would be great if Wired wrote a story about this, or you know, like that it was more uh, common, uh, co more commonly known. Um, yeah, so, and if I could just add to that, I mean, there, I, I've been pressed, you know, in writing the book and then in, in writing follow-up pieces to the book, I've been pressed with people saying, okay, right, but surely, you know, venture capital has happened on its own around the world. And I've been really hard pressed to find an example where genuinely it's just, you know, great investment opportunities and it's just come to be, right? Case after case, you have governments setting clear missions or, or changing the regulation or taxation that has this sort of catalytic uh, impact. I mean, a, a really interesting example for me this summer is uh, in June, the Japanese government, uh, the whole body that was responsible for the Japanese post-war economic miracle, uh, the modern version of this, um, this ministry created the J Startup Initiative, where they are going to, as a government by 2023, want to have 20 unicorns, right? 20 Japanese private companies that are worth at least a billion dollars. Wow. Which, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the interest in replicating this and the interest in, in being more Silicon Valley-like is taking shape in all of these different countries around the world. Some, like the Japanese version, explicit, maybe thinking, you know, the, China, the Made in China 2025, explicit. Uh, and others holding on to some myth of, oh, well, well no, it was our culture, it was our, our tremendous investment opportunities. And I'm more convinced that at, in each story, if you look under the surface, there was this very visible hand of the state. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a, such a successful model. You're mentioning the, the, the Japanese uh, program, and you also mentioned uh, Vietnam is trying to set up their own model. And I thought it was funny, that, um, not funny, but it was the, the, the logo for Jamaica was Startup Jamaica, which is like Get Up Stand Up from Bob Marley. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Get Up Startup. And you immediately <laughs> hear Bob Marley. And, <laughs> and I have to say that one, I mean, the local fit of all of these programs is what drives the success, right? It has to fit what the country is, is good at and it has to fit the culture. The Jamaican example is a really great one. Uh, it's focused on tourism and hospitality and saying, okay, if we're going to do this tech startup thing, let's invest in, in tech startups that are going to improve or revolutionize hospitality and tourism industry. Uh, so there's certainly in, in that you know, great name, but also a nice local fit as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the word I see over and over in your book is context, context. Um, so whatever the venture capitalists can focus on within that particular region makes the most sense. You know, no one's going to be making computers in Jamaica any, anytime soon. Um, but whatever fits their context makes the most sense. That, that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in the in the book, I use the the term uh, develop the the term contextual rationality, uh, which is a bit of an academic term, but it effectively means that you know our idea of, of people as really rationally looking at something and objectively saying, okay, this is the success and this is what drove this, and now I'm going to replicate it in this very robotic way that traditional understandings of rationality would take. It doesn't work. Uh, and, and in fact, the way that people value the Silicon Valley model and then how they value their local adaptation is exactly as you say, it's down to context. So rationality is context-based. 
And then, and then the reversal, I thought it was interesting that a couple of states, you mentioned Singapore, but also Saudi Arabia, they themselves, the whole country is, is taking a world context. Saudi Arabia making headlines by investing $3.5 billion into Uber. That's fascinating. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Saudi Arabia is a late mover in getting into venture capital. I would say it's really gotten interested from the sovereign wealth fund perspective and in building its capital markets in the last, say, five years. Uh, but, you know, in over the weekend, uh, for instance, the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, the PIF, their public investment fund, uh, has been in the news with Elon Musk and Tesla saying that, you know, Tesla is going to go private through the money from from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. And then this morning, I, I wake up and see the headline that the Saudis are also looking at investing in Tesla's main rival, Lucid. Whoa. Uh, so the electric car company rival to Tesla. Uh, and exactly as, as you say, for the, for the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, it, it's about financial returns, but it's about social. It's having access to technology. It's having access to sort of the future in driving socioeconomic change. And that's not only on a local basis, it's, it's very much global. Wow. Wow. So it's, a, it's an exciting, dynamic field, and you're on the, the cutting edge of it. It's, it's exciting to hear all this. Um, and so congratulations again on this fascinating book, The Venture Capital State. And uh, yeah, you had, you had your recent article in American Affairs, and I'm sure we'll be hearing uh, more uh, of, uh, from you in the media and also reviews of the book. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's a pleasure talking to you. It's a pleasure talking with, with you, Robin. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Robin Klingler-Vidra, author of the new Cornell book, The Venture Capital State, The Silicon Valley Model in East Asia. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we would like to offer you a special 30% discount to purchase her book on our website. Please visit us at cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promotion code 09POD at checkout. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.